back again. Mark Chen, it's like a bad horror flick, right? No mask. Just the real, just the real me. Well, it's a privilege again to be back with you and to come under the Lord's word again together with you today. Today is going to be lesson four in the never-ending series. It's like the bread from heaven, hopefully, which feeds 5,000, which keeps on breaking off. But today is lesson four, the gift of the cross, and it is taken from Matthew 16, 21 through 23. So we're following our episode last week from Peter's confession of the king. And before we get to that passage, would you join with me and uh, let's gather and come before the throne of grace and uh, meet with our Savior and our Lord. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for who you are. You are the Lord of glory. You are the living word of God. You are the Prince of Peace. You are wonderful. You are Counselor. You are the Lord, our righteousness. And yet, with all of this, you were the one who was willing to come and live among us, embrace us, walk among us, Lord. Come face to face and receive the fullness of our evil and our sins. Lord, you did not minister to us at an arm's length or at a distance. You came and lived among us. And ultimately, you died for us and for our sins and gave us the greatest gift of all, the gift of the cross, atonement and forgiveness for our sins, and the privilege and opportunity of living with you in the new covenant and being like you and being recreated in your image. So for this, Lord, we thank you this day. Forgive us for our sins, Lord. We fall short in so many different ways, knowing and unknowing. And yet our hope is in a Savior who is more than worthy, more than able, and a cross, Lord, which is more than sufficient for all our sins. And for that reason, we have hope, not in our own strength or our own ability, but in you and you alone. And so, Lord, we thank you for this and rejoice in you. And so as we come to your word this day, Lord, we pray that you would give us as our great high priest mercy and grace in our time of need. May your word fill us, Lord, and transform us and transform the world around us for your name's sake and for your glory. And may the cross always be held high in our hearts and our homes, Lord, in this church and in this country. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we've been marching through the life of Peter, through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been walking in Peter's footsteps during some of his highs, and today we'll deal with one of his lows. And we've been looking at the lessons that God has given Peter, which we will see in the future reappear in 1st and 2nd Peter, as Peter is called to shepherd people who are broken, people who are weak, people who are facing conflict and controversy, both on the outside and also on the inside. And we're getting the backdrop on that story that people don't become shepherds overnight, Things don't happen in a moment or an instant. We live in an American evangelicalism, which to a certain extent sort of conveys the message that all we need to do is raise our hand and say, I do, to Jesus and invite him in our hearts, and all of a sudden the world is different and everything is good. But as we look through Peter's walk as a disciple, we see that there is a big backstory and a long path that precedes his arrival as a shepherd, as an apostle, as a distinguished man of God who was also one who was really one of the founding stones of the church alongside the cornerstone of Christ. And as we've gone through the past three or four weeks, we've seen 
that God has imparted to him with every step on this journey of faith that Peter walks with Jesus. God is imparting to him through Jesus gifts of love to him, and he's building him up. And the first gift that we talked about was the gift of God's love through the person of Jesus, that the fact that Jesus' person and his presence was there with Peter provided Peter with the entirety of God's love. And then we went on from Matthew 4 and the second portion of Matthew 4 and looked at the fact that how specifically did God convey his love to Peter through the life of Jesus? And, and we said that he did so through his word, through the words of Christ. Through the words of Christ, we receive the presence of Christ through the power of the Spirit, and we receive the love of God through that. And specifically with Peter, it came in a command, come now and follow me, and also a promise that I will make you like fishers of men that there is a command and also a promise that comes that we will be made in the image of Christ. And we saw the way Peter was able to receive that love, even in the same way that we're able to receive that love, by simply obeying by faith, by a simple act of obedient faith to do what Jesus called him to do, quickly and immediately, to follow Jesus, to leave his nets and to go after him, and to place the entirety of his life and his future in the hands of the Savior and the Creator and the Lord. And then last week, we said, where did that journey of faith take Peter after he left everything and followed Christ? And we pointed out in Matthew 16 with Peter's confession that the journey of faith leads us directly to Christ, to who he is, to a knowledge of who Jesus truly is. A knowledge which is not a knowledge that comes from reading a textbook or a newspaper, but as we said last week, a knowledge which comes from one place and one place alone. It comes from God. It's a gift of God's divine revelation to his children, to, as Jesus will go on and say, the least among us, not the brilliant, not the learned, not the PhDs and the THDs, but the fishermen, the blue-collar workers, the men among us. And we see that that gift, Jesus has said, is a sign of God's blessing, that those who truly know him, as John tells us, have eternal life, that to know Christ is to have eternal life. It is to know the Father as we know Christ. And that to know Christ is a sign that a new birth has happened in our life, that God has poured his spirit among us and he's transformed us and he's taken us from the curse of sin and placed us in a place of blessing and favor out of love, not because of anything we did, not because of our resume or our profiles, not because we made it to church every Sunday or sang in the worship team, but entirely because of God's love for us. And that love has come through Christ. And Christ has said, what am I going to build my church on? I'm not going to build it necessarily on a particular program. I'm not going to build it on a particular business plan. I'm going to build it on the humble, broken lives of people who have been transformed by the love of God, by the word of God, and by the knowledge of me. That's who I'm going to build my church on. And the gates of hell and death and Satan will not prevail and I will prevail no matter how bleak and how difficult it's going to be. And that brings us right up to our, our present place where we're at, which is the gift of knowing Jesus. And what we're going to find out in this passage that follows Peter's great confession is we're going to basically take a little bit of a U-turn. We're going to find that the gift of knowing Christ also comes with another gift. It is the gift of the cross. 
And as we're going to see and walk through and see Peter's reaction in Matthew 16, we're going to see that that gift of the cross is not something that is always welcome. We sing about it, we talk about it. But what happens when our marriages hit a place where things are difficult or painful? What happens in our jobs where things are difficult? What happens when the income is not enough to meet the expenses of our life? What happens when these things come? How do we react when trials and difficulty happens? And if you're like me, we struggle with it. And what we're going to see in a bigger context with Peter is when the reality of the cross becomes our reality, when it becomes personal, that's a different game. It's easy to sing about it on the big screen. It's very hard to walk on that path and live on that path. So join with me, if you will, at look at Matthew 16. Our emphasis today is going to be 21 through 23, but I'm going to start back at 13, where we were last week, just to give you a flavor and a context. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one he was the Christ. From that time onwards, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Heavy words. When I talked to Julie about my sermon, one of the things that we usually do is as we're driving on the freeway, I'll give her a rundown and she can look at me and say, I don't really understand what you're saying and it's a good check to go back to the notes. But as I went through this one, she said, wow, this is going to be a heavy sermon. Uh, so yes, it is. It's going to be heavy, but hopefully good. As we look at Peter, we have seen Peter at the height of triumph and blessing. And the promise is being told that he will be one of the founding apostles of the church. And here we see Peter at one of the lowest of the lows. And I think it's a, a truism that many journeys and many races that start well are always at risk of stumbling and faltering. And many runners 
who start well, as we've seen in the Olympics so many times, can easily trip and stumble and fall off the track. And as we've seen some of those things happen this summer in the Olympics, not only do some of these men stumble, but as they stumble, other men stumble over them and they take out two or three. And Proverbs tells us that pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit precedes destruction. And if we can say this is true for Peter, a believer who loved Christ and who knew Christ and who was perhaps among the greatest of disciples, how can we say that the same is not true for us? But the interesting thing in this passage is that the thing that Peter stumbles over and ultimately becomes a stumbling block is what? It's the cross. It's not infidelity. It's not, you know, stealing funds from Jesus' private treasury fund. But it's really the destiny of the king because what Jesus does in this passage is he's rolling out for them. Now you know who I am. Let me show you what my path is and the path that God has set aside for me. And that path leads directly to the cross. And the challenge, of course, is are we going to receive that or are we going to oppose that? And are we going to follow alongside or are we going to stumble and become a stumbling block for other people? Because at the heart of the issue, at the heart of that journey of faith, we can look at any number of things that causes us cause us to falter, but at the heart of the issue is that dividing line of the cross. And part of the challenge that Peter's experiencing here is a challenge that, yes, he is a believer, yes, he loves Christ, but he's dealing with this conflict of his own personal expectations of what that path should be and what that path should look like and what a Savior and what a Lord should look like. I'm going to share with you a similar episode on a much minor scale from Mark Chin's life of one of my many traveling fiascos. And there have been many, and Julie can tell you about them. But several years ago, probably over a decade ago, I was, had the privilege of, of journeying through Spain with a childhood buddy of mine, some of who you know and met, my groomsmen at my wedding, Nabil. And as we went to Spain and were traveling across the country, and the big picture was I wanted to go and see the areas in the south of Spain where the Christians and the Muslims had fought together and those areas that had both Christianity and Islam and there were reasons that we wanted to go and check it out and theological reasons. But as we were on the way, I had found out that, in fact, in Spain, there are many wonderful natural hot springs in the mountains and that there are an abundance of these tiny little towns that have these little spa towns where they have natural mineral water and hot springs that are supposed to be wonderful. So distracted as I was from the purpose of our journey, I persuaded my good friend Nabil and with visions of uh, a wonderful spa town and, and the spa town that I found out about, they actually bottled the water there and sold it throughout Spain and throughout Europe. So. Uh, I had these visions of, of, you know, soaking in this natural hot spring out in the mountains with all the beautiful Evian people and all the beautiful Perrier people out there. And I thought, oh, this is worth a deviation from the road and the journey. And I was able to uh, seduce and persuade my friend to be able to go on that trip. And so we got up early in the morning, trekked out, got on a bus at the crack of dawn, did this long journey to the hills. and. Uh, 
When we got there, to my shock and my surprise, as we got off and walked through the street, rather than being surrounded by the beautiful Evian and Perrier people, we were surrounded by a multitude of senior citizens with all manner of swollen legs and swollen joints and scary rashes. And you can imagine my horror and concern as I thought about soaking in a natural hot spring with an abundance of very nasty and evil-looking rashes. And so I spent the rest of the morning running through the rest of that town saying, this can't be the place, this can't be the place. And finally, my friend Nabil, who was a gracious guy, just kind of looked at me and said, Mark, this is the place. And I think the European and Spanish idea of what a spa and a spa town is is different from your idea of what a town or a spa town is. And Nabil was entirely right. In fact, in Europe and many of those places, there's a long history and tradition since Roman times onwards where ill and sick people would travel long distances to go to natural hot springs to drink them and to soak in them for their rashes and their arthritis and to be healed and to be made well. I wasn't quite aware of that, but I became quite aware of that in a short period of time. And as I was dealing with this, what ended up happening was denial ended up turning into disappointment. Disappointment ended up turning into frustration. Frustration ended up turning into discontent. And I was in a foul mood, and I felt that the whole day, all that time, all that effort, all that energy had been a complete waste of time. And yet, as I look back at that time in that episode, I realized that, you know what? The only thing sad and pathetic about that trip was Mark Chin and his heart. Because there was nothing wrong with the water at that place. It was everything that it had promised to be. It was excellent, has provided edification and healing for many people over the years, and probably still does. The challenge was with my expectations. And I'll go one step further. They were my idolatrous expectations, were set on the things of men rather than the things of God. Things that I thought it should be. Things I wanted it to be. And it was also a deviation from the road based on my personal pride. Because at the end of the day, as I looked at these people, I thought, I'm not sick like them. I'm not old. I don't have rashes. I don't have swollen legs. This is not for me. There's nothing here for me to benefit from. And as we look at that in the bigger scheme in our lives and we look at Peter and what Peter is going to express from his heart here, as we look at difficult workplaces, difficult employers, difficult jobs, difficult marriages, difficult circumstances, chronic illness, how often do we struggle when God places challenges and difficulties, and let's go one step further, trials of the cross, because we're pursuing the path that he has placed us on, and the path that he has placed us on because we're believers and we're following him and we're being obedient, suddenly turns out to be different than what we expected, Sudden, suddenly turns out to be challenging, suddenly turns out to be difficult. At what time do we struggle with that whole realm of emotions, of discontent, frustration, Sometimes, like me, even blaming the circumstances. Whereas the real challenge is, what's going on in my heart? What are my expectations? What did I expect when I heard the call, come now, follow me? And how badly do I really feel that I need a savior? How badly do I really feel that I need the cross? And so we see as we start to look at Matthew 16, 
What is it that Peter's responding or reacting to is ultimately he will oppose the cross. It's Jesus' explanation in the beginning in Matthew 16, 21 of what his destiny is as the king. And Matthew begins in Matthew 21, 16, 21 by saying, from that time onwards. And what Matthew is doing as he opens that section is he's letting us know that Jesus' ministry has forever changed at this point in time. When you see this come up through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll notice that each of the times he does, he's saying there's a radical change that's about to happen in Jesus' ministry. And Jesus' ministry is no longer going to be about the public proclamation of the good news of the Gospel. It is now going to be focused on the cross, and it's going to be focused on the preparation for the cross of his disciples. And the beautiful thing that we see and that we will see as we look at this first verse is that Jesus is always the shepherd. He is never the CEO or the coach who at the last minute tells you, guess what? You're sitting on the bench. Today we're going with a different plan. I'm the coach or I'm the CEO. He is always the shepherd. And whenever there are challenges or difficulties, he is a full disclosure man who comes and lets them know ahead of time, look, I love you, you're with me. I'm not just going to send you out of the trenches and over the hill. I'm going to prepare you for that. And that's what he's doing here. And what he shares with them is a destiny that is markedly different from the messianic expectations of the Jews and the disciples at that time. And what does he do? He begins to show or let them know, his disciples, that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised up on the third day. He gives them four things or four events that are an essential part of his destiny and God's plan for him. And that phrase, he must, literally is, it is necessary. It is necessary for him. And that notion of it is necessary, when you go through the scriptures, you will see that it's a reference not to, I've got to pay my bill on Friday, or I've got to make it to work at 8 o'clock. It is what's referred to as a divine necessity. What Jesus, is, what Jesus is referring to here is the fact that God himself, before the beginning of time, in his infinite wisdom and his infinite love, has ordained a specific path for the king and has ordained a specific plan for our salvation and not one element can be left out and not one element is going to be left up to chance that our salvation the destiny of the king is not a season of American Idol where it's left up to your votes possible chance and the whims of men it is entirely 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 according to God's sovereign divine loving infinitely wise plan. And for the disciples, this should be a source of comfort. For us, it should be a source of comfort. Your future, your destiny as a child of God is not left to possible chance. Your sin is not bigger than the cross. Your future and your fate and the fate of your marriage and the fate of your job and the fate of your career, if you are a child of God, is entirely in his hands. And as Romans 8, 28 and 29, as we read this morning, that God will work it all for good, but to do what? To conform us to the image of the Son. 
and to conform us to the image of Son. The Son, as you go on in Romans, what Paul will talk about is how that compares the glory of God in comparison to suffering and trials that both come together. And so Jesus lists for them the divine necessity of four things that must happen. And what's the first thing that he talks about? The first is that he must go to Jerusalem. It is necessary that I go or that the Son of Man go to Jerusalem. What's the big deal about Jerusalem? Jerusalem was and is the city of God, the city of peace, or shalom. And it is the place, if we remember, where God called Abraham to do what? To sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. Genesis 22 tells us that, and also Chronicles informs us that Mount Moriah is actually the Temple Mount, the place where the Passover lambs are sacrificed. And then we see that Jerusalem is the city of David by God's choosing, the place where the temple is built, where God in his glory comes and dwells with his people. It is a symbol of God's loving salvation that he would dwell with sinners. But because of that, it is the place of worship and a worship that is marked by sacrifice because a holy God cannot dwell with a sinful people unless our sins in some way are atoned for and forgiven and removed. And so we see that Jerusalem is the place every year during the Day of Atonement where the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and sacrifices are offered on behalf of the people so that a holy God can meet with a sinful people, so that love can happen. And we see that Jerusalem is the place where thousands of Passover lambs are sacrificed at every Passover so that a holy God and a loving God can find a way to be and to minister salvation to a sinful and rebellious people. Jerusalem is the place where God's love and his salvation meets his judgment, and it meets in one place. It will meet at the cross. But the flip side of that is on a human level. Jerusalem is the place where the leaders of the Jews reside, the religious leaders and the political leaders. It is the place of people who most oppose and most reject Jesus. And so for the disciples who are now like princes in the kingdom of heaven, they can almost do no wrong in Galilee. They have seen the miracles. It is their home stomping ground. They are being seen by their relatives, people who know them, people who are familiar with them. And they have become big men in a small town. But Jerusalem is the big city, the place where men look down on them. Men look down on their accents. Men look down on the fact that they are fishermen. Men who hate Jesus and men who are actively plotting to find a way to stone him. And so for the disciples, Jerusalem is way out of their comfort zone. And yet this is precisely where not only does Jesus need to go, not only where he must go, but where he is leading his disciples. And I would say, how often for us, in our hearts, in our lives, in our places of ministry is the place where Jesus needs to go and must go and the place that he must rule, the place of greatest resistance, the place of greatest hostility, the place filled with the community of people who say, we're in control, no thanks. The place which is the furthest from our area of our comfort zone. 
And yet this is precisely where Jesus must go. And if the disciples are going to join him, they must follow with him. What's the second must? Not only must he go to Jerusalem, but he must suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. What's the suffering that Jesus must, must experience? The notion of suffering is the idea of enduring evil. The idea of being squeezed. The idea of being innocent and suffering. Not rightly or correctly. And in Jesus' case, as we will go to Matthew 26 and 27, we will see that that suffering of many things involves the fact that he must be betrayed by someone he's loved and poured his life into for three years and treated like a son. He must be abandoned by those men who he has poured everything and given everything to and shared the most intimate moments of his earthly life with. He must be wrongly accused and treated like a criminal. He must be tried unjustly during the night. He must be beaten. He must be humiliated. He must be rejected. And ultimately, he must be taken and handed over to people who are considered by the Jews the most ungodly of all people. And he must stand in a place of being cursed and be considered less than a dog and less than a Gentile. Someone who is ever for, forever cursed not only by God but by the people of God. And he must do this why? Hebrews lets us know that Christ did this out of obedience to the Father. And we realize that it's what perfected him, made him as complete because he had another role that was to come as our great high priest who could sympathize and understand with us when we are beaten and when we are tried and when we are undergoing difficulties for the name of Christ. He did this out of love for us. What did he do and what exactly was he doing while he was suffering that evil? He was essentially taking all the blows of the evil of the world, all the ugliness of the world. He did not just have to bear our guilt. He had to bear the consequences of our guilt. He had to bear the consequences and face it face to face. It's easy to say as a physician when someone comes in and they've stumbled or fallen or they're cut or they're bruised. It's easy to say, I feel bad for you. It's easy to have sympathy for the women or children who come in on occasion who have been abused by their husbands or their fathers, as heartrending as it is. It's a very different thing to say, you know what? I have experienced that, and I have experienced the fullness of that, and I experienced it on your behalf. This is what Jesus must do. And he must do it because of the horror and the ugliness of our sin and what that requires. What's the third thing that Jesus must do? He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. He must be killed. And the phrase that's used here for being killed is not the idea of a public execution. It's not the idea of a capital punishment. It's the idea of murder. It's the word that is given for someone whose life is violently removed from them and taken away. And it's an ugly and it's a painful death. Why must he do that? A 
of course, we know and you've read the story and you've seen, he must do it because of our sin, because someone must bear the guilt of our sin. If the Lord is going to have a relationship, if the glory of the Lord is to dwell with us, if we are to have a new hope and a new life, it does not come for free. It is costly grace, and it comes at the expense of a life. And there is only one person, the perfect Lamb of God, who could do that. Who must he be killed by? We're told that he must suffer at the hands in the previous section, and he will also be crucified. But he must suffer at the hands of the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. That's a reference to the Sanhedrin. It's a reference to the leadership, the equivalent of the American Senate. These are the best. These are the brightest. And these are the men in Jewish tradition who, whose office was appointed by God to lead the people of God in the word of God and on the path of righteousness. And one thing that this text makes clear is that an honor and that a title does not necessarily confer holiness and does not necessarily confer our rightness with the Lord. In fact, we have seen in the history of the church, and we need to be careful and guard our own hearts, as those who have been appointed in leadership take agendas of their own which are apart from the word of God and ultimately become hostile to Christ and become hostile to the cross. And that the journey of the church becomes about success, about growing the church, about having prosperous ministries, as opposed to the simple truth of the cross, which is a much harder and much more difficult, but much more necessary truth, and which is the heart of our gospel. Jesus must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things at the hands of the spiritual leaders of Israel. He must be killed like a lamb being led to the slaughter. But the good news is he must be raised up on the third day. Not one element of these divine necessities can be missing. And the good news is that he must be raised up. And this is God's doing. Why must he be raised up? Because a king must live if he is to reign. Because of who God is. Because God is a righteous God. God is a just God. God is a God whose steadfast love endures forever. And God is a God who is faithful to his word and his promises. And he will not abandon his beloved son to decay or to Sheol. Why must he rise again? Because Christ is righteous. Because he is the son of God. And because he is greater than death. And because he is greater than sin. And there is no sin and there is no crime. And there is no stumbling and there is no faltering. That his death on the cross is not sufficient to cover and so he must live because death and Satan and the gates of hell are not strong enough to hold him. And so that the world would know who he truly is, that he is indeed the Christ and the Son of the living God. What a great message and what a great gift. The divine necessity of all that Christ must do, even in his hardship. And at the heart of it is the suffering and the cross of Christ, which to us is, as we've been saying, the greatest gift of all. Because when we deal and interact with people who are sick and dying, what is the greatest gift that we can give them? It's a gift of life. And as people have come into my practice with tumors or cancer, and we sit down and say, look, 
We need some hard chemotherapy. We're dealing with a stage three or stage four cancer. We need extensive surgery. And we need to go through this, and it's going to be difficult, and it's going to be painful. Why should that be good news for someone who's physically sick? It's because on a human level, there's some remote chance that there can be, right, that there can be life and there can be remedy as the thing that is killing us is being removed. Why is this the greatest gift? Because in our lives, our sin is our cancer. And it must be removed some way, somehow. And the only way that it can be removed is by the cross and the path of the cross. And that is what gives us the hope of life. And that is, what's, that is what gives us the encouragement, not just to be a cancer patient who is in remission and constantly going back year after year for checkups and chemotherapy, worrying that it might come back. It's the hope of being, like we sang today, the new creation in Christ, where we are completely new. And as Peter will discover, that he doesn't need his whole body washed, but he just needs his feet washed because he's been cleansed by Christ. It is good news. And yet, how does Peter receive it in verse 22? It's a little bit different. In verse 22, we read that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. For Peter, this was not good news. This was bad news. This was very bad news. And the tenor and the tone of what he does, the language that he took Jesus, it's almost literally he grabbed Jesus away from the rest of the disciples and took him aside privately. And the word says he began to rebuke. It means he rebuked him repeatedly. And the term rebuke that is used here is the language that is used when a king or a general pulls aside his soldier or his servant and apportions or assigns blame to that servant and reprimands him for the place and the position and for his actions. And this is the role that Peter does. And as hard as that is to see, let me ask you, how often when things turn out differently than we expected or that we hoped, when things get hard or difficult, and we rejoice with the Lord when we're able to say, yes, I'm a believer, and yes, I'm going to serve on a mission trip to India, or yes, I'm going to serve on admin committee, and it starts out well, and then things get ugly or things get difficult. How often do we see the same challenges in our heart where we, the little rocks, suddenly assume that we are the experts, that we are the rock. And in what we share with other people, or what we share with our spouses, or what we share even in our prayers, God forbid, to the Lord, is that, Lord, you don't know what you're doing. These men don't know what they're doing. I know better, because I'm a rock. And essentially what we do when we go down that path when it departs from the clear word of the Lord, is we are saying to God, you don't know what you're doing. I'm in charge now. I know better. We are, in essence, in essence, rejecting the word of the Lord, and we are rejecting the love of God. And that is what Peter is doing here. And so his frame of reference is really himself. It's no longer the word of God. This is about me. And this is what about, about what I think is best. 
And then Peter articulates that. And he articulates it in very strong language. He says to Jesus as he's pulled him aside, once the disciple now acting like the master, and he says to him, God forbid it. He's using very, very strong language. It's a Hebrew idiom. And he's essentially saying at all costs, intervening, call God down and ask for this to stop right away. And then he goes on and says, never, ever, ever shall this be. It's literally what he's saying. He's basically making a declaration like God. This is never going to happen over my dead body. This is unimaginable, horrifying, and I'm going to stand in your way, and it's not going to happen. What's going on with Peter? I think when we take the text in its entirety, it's important for us to realize, as Peter is here opposing the king, that Peter's not some pagan guy who's snorting crack cocaine in a crack house somewhere. He's not some politician who's being unfaithful with his wife. He's a disciple who's left everything to follow Christ. He's given, up, he's given everything up, his family, his employment, everything he has, every form of security, and he's put it all and bet it all on Christ. He loves Christ dearly. That's unquestioned, and that's been proven in his life. He's received Jesus' message. He's served him. You've served on the worship team. You've served in pastoral ministry. Peter had done more. And Peter knew he, who he was by virtue of the Holy Spirit. Peter had professed that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and had stuck with Jesus through thick and thin. And I think it's important as we consider this that opposition to the cross, of course, we think of communists and Muslims and all these folks overseas who are putting Christians in prison. But sometimes some of the greatest opposition to the cross comes from people like you and people like me, the children of God. It comes from within. And as we look at Peter, there were a lot of things that he got correctly. He got who Jesus was. He got the fact that he loved Jesus. He got the fact that the cross was something that the Son of God should not have to undergo and that an innocent and pure and righteous God of the universe should not be subjected to this. And this is a huge and incredible and horrific injustice, greater than all the injustices that the world has ever seen, infinitely more so. And yet I would propose to you, and as we read and we see the context, and as you see Peter later, I believe that there were a couple of things that Peter didn't see. Number one was his sin. And an understanding that his sin was so great and so ugly that there was no other alternative for a right relationship with God except that Jesus would have to suffer and that he would have to die. And the other thing that Peter did not see was the pride of his own heart. And those are invariably the two things that set our affections on the things of man rather than the things of God and bring us to oppose the cross of Christ. Because until I see my sin for what it is and until I look in the mirror and say, Mark Chin, chief among sinners, not Mark Chin, who the people at Cornerstone think I am, 
great, friendly guy. Not Mark Chin, who the people in the doctor's office or the patients think I am. Mark Chin, a great guy. Not Mark Chin, who the guys at Grace Church Advance think, faithful guy, gets his assignments done all, all the time, easy to work with. It's not until the heart is exposed by the light of the Word of God, and I see, you know what? I am totally depraved, and from my mother's birth, I was conceived in iniquity, and that everything about me is an abomination to God, and if there is anything good in me, it has come from the Spirit of God. It is all grace. It is all mercy. When that starts to become my reality, I can receive the cross and say, you know what? It's horrific, and it is wrong. And guess what? So is my sin, and so is my heart. Peter doesn't see that. And so we see that the opposition to the king receives in our final verse, in verse 23, the rebuke of the king. And Matthew tells us, because he was an eyewitness with the twelve, he says, but he, Jesus, turned. And he uses the term from the verb strafo, that he moved. And what you have the idea, the picture is that Peter has pulled him aside and he's holding Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus saying, this is the path of the cross. And Peter's saying, no, not that, that path. I'm going to stand in your way against my de dead body. And Jesus, when he says he turns, you can visualize P Jesus turning and twisting and removing his arm from Peter. And then what does he say to him? Some of the harshest words that we see in Scripture. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. When you go back to Matthew 4 and you see Jesus' temptation by Satan, where Satan says, come and worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and I will allow you to reign as the king if you will only come and worship me and if you will only avoid the cross. Jesus rebukes Satan in the same language using similar words. Get away from me. Get behind me. And essentially, Jesus is telling Peter, get out of my path, get out of my way. And he's assuming now the position of the king to say, you're not to be here in front of me. There's a path that I'm going to go, the same path that he said to Satan. And then he says, get behind me. And perhaps one of the points that he's making is, Peter, you have gone out in front of me and you have pretended to be the leader here. And you have pretended to take charge of the community and the flock but you only lead in as much as you follow me and you submit to my word. And the moment you step away from that, you are partnering with Satan himself. Why? Because Satan is the adversary. Satan is the opponent. Satan is a murderer. Satan is the father of lies. This is what the Gospel of John tells us, and this is what is told to us throughout the New Testament. Satan is the one who is continually opposing us and saying, the cross is not sufficient. Any other way except the cross. That there is a way to have glory, and there is a way to have a right relationship with God, and the cross, and the suffering, and the pain, and the guilt of sin do not need to be addressed and do not need to be dealt with. Why? Because you're good enough. And you're worthy. Why do you need to suffer? Why does Christ need to suffer? 
Why should it be difficult? And so Peter is given the name, a most horrible name of all names. He's been given the name Satan. Why? Because he stands in Satan's place and he thinks Satan's thoughts and he does Satan's bidding. And the message of the text to each one of us is that the moment we as little rocks assume the position of the rock, the moment that we deviate from the promises and the commands of the Word of God, the moment we begin to develop a plan which we think is better in our own eyes, the moment we've got a better plan for our family than what God's Word says, the moment we've got a better plan for our career or dealing with a difficult coworker as opposed to what Christ commands us to do in His Scripture, the moment we have a different plan for our ministry, the moment we have a different plan for our church, whether it's church growth or some fair, not that those things are bad, but the moment that those things become the things that lead the charge apart from the Word of God, what we are doing is we are rejecting the love of God, we are rejecting the Word of God, we are setting ourselves up as the Christ. We are blaspheming God, and what we are doing is we are representing Satan himself to oppose Christ, to oppose his people, and to bring division and fracture among the people of God. Why would we do such a thing? Jesus explains. He says to Peter, you are a stumbling block to me. That that position is essentially one of what's referred to as scandalon. You become a scandal to me. We use that term in the news when a politician falls, when there's an immoral compromise that destroys his career. And it traces its roots to the Greek word which is referred to not only as a stumbling block, but as a trap something that ensnares you, something like a bear trap where you put your foot in and it grabs you and it no longer allows you to proceed on the journey of faith and it causes you to become not only someone who falls but a stumbling block for other people and this is what Peter has become. And then Jesus explains why in one simple phrase. He says, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but you are setting your interests on the things of man. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but you're setting your mind on the things of man. At the heart of every action, at the heart of every word that proceeds from our mouth, comes an expectation. An expectation of the way things should be. An expectation of what is right and what is wrong. And there are only two options with those expectations. It is, an, is it God's expectation that has come from his word? Or is it Mark Chen's expectation of what Mark Chen thinks is best? An expectation that comes from a sinful heart. And if it's not coming from God's clear expectations and clear word of what his path and his destiny is for us, then we know that those expectations can only come from the idols of our heart the affections of the heart, the things that enamor us with the world. And clearly for Peter here, some of the things that had enamored them as a culture and a community, and we see this, that it's not just individuals. We know this as Asians. 
We know the idolatry of education. We know the idolatry of business success. We know the idolatry of a shame-based culture. We know the idolatry of leadership within the Asian community. All of those things, and they are cultural as well as personal, and we all have them. And I know these things because my family has them, and we have walked this path. I waited three years to go to seminary so that I could pray with my father, who just struggled with this, and ultimately, out of a heart of love, told my mother, he said, I just don't want to see my son suffer in the ministry. And that's heartbreaking. What do you do? How do you handle that? And I'm not saying seminary is the path for everybody and it's the be-all and the end-all, but the challenge that we have is we struggle not only with ourselves suffering, but we struggle with seeing family members and loved ones suffer. And many times when we get in the Lord's way, it's not only because we're trying to prevent our own suffering, but we're coming in and trying to prevent other people's suffering. And ultimately, I speak as a physician and a wounded healer. One of the idolatries that my wife will share with you is I struggle with the idolatry of alleviating suffering, that people's suffering need to be alleviated at all costs. And so in ministry and in every place, I've got to fix it. I've got to go there. I've got to make sure that a tear is not shed and that a heart is not broken. But you know what? When Christ died on the cross, tears were shed and hearts were broken. And I can't speak for the Lord, but I know for certain that for a father to watch his son being crucified by evil men and subjected to all manner of abuse and horror, on a human level, it must have been heartbreaking. And the Lord said, I love you and it is necessary because I love you. And this is the only way that our sin can be dealt with and addressed. Why is the cross good news? Why is suffering good news? It's because, as Paul says, it comes from a heart of infinite love. And it comes from a wisdom of infinite wisdom that defies the wisdom of man. And that natural man cannot understand or see those things. And that the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to man. And the only safe place brothers and sisters, to be is with one hand on the cross and one hand on the word of the Lord. And the moment we deviate from either of those two positions, we are in serious trouble. That's what the stakes are because the stakes are life and death. And Jesus, by this harsh rebuke to Peter, is communicating that. And we see that this rebuke to Peter as harsh as it is, is actually an expression of the love of God. Because whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And what Peter needed most at this time is he had the spirit, he had the belief in Christ, he had a love for the Lord. But he needed a heart change, and he needed the old truth of his past life, which he had brought in, switched with the new truth of the cross. And friends, how often when we get saved do we bring in the old man? And when we go to 1 Peter and we see Paul, it's just natural that when things get tough and things get difficult, we hit cruise control. And the place that we go to is the place of comfort and familiarity. For Mark Chen, it's the place of being a doctor. 
where every conflict in the home needs to be resolved in 15 or 20 minutes because that's the amount of time Kaiser gives me to solve a problem. You know, that, that's my comfort level. That's my place. And yet Peter tells us in First and Second Peter that the place that we need to be is at the cross and we need to put off all malice, all envy, the old man and the lusts and the passions that corrupt us and the flesh that dissuades us from the path of the cross and we need to put on the mind of Christ and we need to get sober-minded and we need to set Christ apart in our hearts as the greatest thing in our life and we need to set our minds on the heart and mind of Christ and we need to set our minds on the cross because Peter says after we have suffered for a little while Sin and flesh will be conquered and subdued. And ultimately, God's path and purpose and gift for us does not end in the cross. It ends with his love of transforming each one of you and I into his image. What we see here in the gift of the cross, which comes with a rebuke as well as an instruction, is one of God's greatest gifts to us. We need to hear it and receive it. How does that affect this personally? I'll take two minutes because I want to make this personal if I haven't made it personal enough. As we look as individuals, we have to ask ourselves, why do we gather at Cornerstone Bible Church? And there are many of us here today where we gather together and there are many blessings that come from gathering together, but we need to look into our own hearts because we know that there are many people who profess to be Christians and profess to be saved. But life is really about coming to church and being with people and singing songs and feeling better about ourselves. But the real question and the heart of it, the issue is, have you been to the cross? Have you confronted the magnitude of your own sin? And have you seen that the only hope and salvation comes from Christ? And this word needs to be said, not only for those who may not be saved among us, but for those who are saved. Because it's easy to get busy, as I have. And it's easy to get active in ministry. And it's easy for things to become about preaching a sermon and making sure deadlines are done and forgetting that what I need most is the gift of the cross. And if that's the case for you, take some time and consider that in your heart. And if there's any doubt on that, then go to Christ and go to the cross and address your sin, and know him as Lord, and know him as his Savior, not just a friend or someone who's an excuse to come here and be with friends. What about those of us who are members and those of us who, are, who serve on a church level? I want you to think about your context of serving here. I want you to think about your life here at Cornerstone. I want you to think about your interaction with one another. You have gone through a difficult and hard time. You have stuck it out. You have been faithful. You have stayed here. You have continued to gather together. You have continued to hear the word of God, and it has not been easy. Friends have left. People have gone to places that are more pleasant than this place is. Better air conditioning. Maybe better songs. Maybe better children care. Whistles and bells. Big screens. It has been painful for you to persevere. And yet... Inasmuch as you are being obedient to the Lord and you are coming because of the cross and you're coming to love Christ and to serve his people, you are walking in Christ's footsteps. And I will say to you, as hard and as difficult as it is, 
Christ is doing a work in you, and he is transforming you into his image. And though we weep with Christ in the evening, we will rejoice in the morning, and one day we will see him highly exalted, and we will stand with him as little rocks with the cornerstone. And I pray that you would persevere until we would all see that day together. And to see this not as a time necessarily of completely discipline or hardship, but to see this as an expression of the love of the Lord doing a mighty work in your midst. Because when we look with the wisdom of man, we are of all people losers to be gathering in a hot gym on Sunday morning. But when we see it with the eyes of the cross, we of all people are most privileged. And Bill Gates and all the CEOs of the world and all the sports champions of the world have nothing on us. Why? Because we have the living word of God and we are becoming like him. And as you consider as a church the path ahead, I will tell you, point blank, if you are going to be obedient to the word of the Lord, if you are going to step out, not as leaders of the world, but as servants and shepherds of the king, each one of you serving one another, the path ahead for the next two to three months to the next year will be difficult. It's not like we come in and read the word of the Lord and all of a sudden feel better, go home. Things are better because Lance and Han are here and things are going to be smooth sailing. If we're going to pursue Christ and we're going to pursue the cross, it is going to be difficult and it is going to be challenging. If the destiny for the king is the cross and if we walk after him, that's our destiny too. But what's our hope? That as we walk that path, Christ has walked it before us and he walks with us. And the plan of his salvation is a plan of divine necessity. It is not left up to chance. And he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail and those who are his, he will never let go of. And though Peter stumbled and was rebuked and though he veered off the path, Jesus never let him go. And Peter was able to rise and become a shepherd, not a leader, a shepherd, who when he shepherded other leaders and elders, he said to them, give your oversight gently, not as one who lords it over like the Gentiles do, but graciously, gently, kindly, softly. And to those who served under them, he said, what? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Cast your anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. And he will exalt you in due time. That is the Peter where the cross has dealt with his pride and the cross has dealt with his idolatrous expectations. And all that is left is the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the cross, the beauty of God's grace, the beauty of God's infinite salvation plan, which is real and which is alive for each one of us. May that be the spirit of Cornerstone Church. May that be the spirit of your leaders. May that be the spirit of the men who are nominated for elders. May that be the spirit of Cornerstone Church, not now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, where, Lord willing, you will be able to go alongside other churches that have struggled in the way that you have, and you can say, wait patiently. For as we've wept with the Savior and suffered with him, 
so too will we rise again and we will one day be like him. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what you have done for us, we are so, so, so unworthy. We cannot begin to understand or imagine the sacrifice, the horror and the pain. And yet such is the magnitude and nature of our sin. So Jesus, have your way with us. Make your cross first and foremost and central in our hearts and lives. And may your, cry, may your cross live here in Cornerstone Bible Church. And may we say, as Paul did, that we seek to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. May we cast, the, cast aside the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of our expertise. And may you be most highly glorified in our hearts, our lives, our marriages, our ministries, our families and our time together as a church. And may this be your church. And may you build it. And may your name be highly exalted this day and every day for your name's sake and for your glory because of you, who you are, most beautiful, King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of peace. You are the Lord, our righteousness, and we praise you for that. In your name we pray, amen.